Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Our reading will be Hebrews 12 verse 28 through chapter 13 verse 6. Give serious attention to the infallible, inspired, and errant Word of God as we read from Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 28 of chapter 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is the consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge and the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that as we have heard your word today, we would really hear it. We would hear it as your spirit opens our eyes to see it. As you bring to us the life and power of the word, may it bring to us comfort and hope and conviction and reproof and training in righteousness. And we pray more than anything, we would see Jesus in him only. And we pray in his name. Amen. Every single week, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews and understanding that the original audience to whom the book of Hebrews was written were people who were so beaten down, they were exhausted spiritually, mentally, and physically. They were hurting from difficulties and struggle. They were experiencing persecution, and they were ready to ask the question, where do I go to resign? Where do I go to give up and get out of this? And so we've also seen that every single week the author of Hebrews gives us something, he gives his readers something that helps them face the brutal, biting realities of life to help them stand firm and solid when everything around them is shaking apart and falling apart and falling down. And then we come to chapter 13 and we sort of have... uh, something that's very different than the rest of the book. Um, And so it seems like almost an anticlimax when you first, at first blush, when you first look at it. It doesn't seem like we're getting any kind of prescriptions for power and strength and fortitude. Instead, it sort of looks like a to-do list. Miscellaneous ethical prescriptions, miscellaneous ecclesiastical stuff. And we're supposed to be doing this together in the church, but that's totally wrong if you see it that way. 
This is not anticlimax. What we have here and what we're being told here in so many words is you will never make it. Swimming upstream in a downstream world, you will never make it unless you have life with the community. You are made for community. And you will not make it. It's too tough. It's too hard. It's too stressful. It's too powerful. We need to stand strong together. And this text emphasizes the reality of a community. We will never make it in life without being deeply and strongly embedded in a robust, sort of thick, close community of people who have experienced the gospel and the grace of God. This passage tells us about the significance of that community and the intensity of that community and the openness of that community and where we get the power to create this community and sustain this community. And so that is what we will be looking at today. First, I want you to see the importance of, of, of community. I read the end of chapter 12 because chapter 12 and chapter 13 are connected, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But we saw when we were looking last week at the consuming fire of God, that God is a consuming fire, the presence of God, and that's what's at the heart of the universe. What's at the heart of the universe is the royal presence of God, the Shekinah glory, the consuming fire of his own nature. So what does that mean? Well, it means this. At the heart of the universe is the love, the joy, sort of the exploding joy and love that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have toward each other as they defer to, glorify, center upon, rejoice in, and adore each other. That at the heart of the universe is the triune God, the threeness of God, and the oneness of God, exploding and experiencing joy as they defer to one another, as they adore one another, as they love one another, as they center on one another, as they rejoice in each other, as they glorify each other. That's the core and center of the universe. And it's personal. He's personal. And we said last week that that's what we're designed for to participate in the dance of the Trinity, that our God is a being in community. And when we become rightly related to him, he places us in a community, and we are to image him by being beings in community. You were never meant to live the Christian life alone, ever. The New Testament does not know that. The Old Testament does not know of any such faction. There are no Lone Ranger saints. You are made for community. You were designed for that. Every human being is built and designed to stand in the presence of God and not to center on yourself, but to defer to, glorify, center on, rejoice, and adore the glory of God supremely. What's the chief end of man? Right. Some would say to glorify God and endure him forever. But no, it's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We participate in the community. We've been drawn in. God has enlarged the circle. He's taken us in. 
And so part of what it means to be rightly related to God is to be part of this community. We said last week that the love you're looking for in every set of arms, the beauty you're looking for in any face, the gold you're looking for in all your competitions, the rest you're really looking for in all your homes and your houses are found in being rightly related to the Trinity and rightly related to other image bearers who are part of the community, part of the family. Nothing else is going to satisfy the deepest needs and wants of your soul because that is what you're made for. That is what you're looking for. That's what you're hungry for. That's what you're thirsty for. Nothing else will satisfy. When the presence of God, however, came down on Sinai, as we saw last week in chapter 12, and it came into the tabernacle so you could approach the presence of God, God's presence under the old covenant was terrifying. It was traumatic. It was fatal. If you touched it, it was deadly. Of course, now we have the presence of God mediated through Moses in the tabernacle, and the first question that comes up is how do you acceptably worship God in his presence? How do we approach him? How do we appropriately approach him, and how do we behave in the presence of God? That's the question that always comes up. And the answer to it is in the book of Leviticus. Now, many, many people over the years have said, I'm going to read the Bible from the front to the back. And that's a very virtuous, cool thing to do. It's a very spiritual thing to do. And so they say, I'm going to start in Genesis, and I'm going to read right through till I finish the book of Revelation. And Genesis is kind of long. It's 50 chapters. And you can probably get through it. There's a lot of sex and violence, and it's interesting, and it's tedious, and you may not understand all of it, and you hit a Toledote or a generation here and there, and it kind of got, you kind of lose interest in that. And then you get to Exodus, and Exodus is pretty exciting as you start reading the first chapters of Exodus. But then you get to the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle and how God's people are to live with God's presence in the tabernacle, and it gets a little more tedious. Most people die off in the book of Leviticus. Most people's New Year's resolution goes to Leviticus to die. Because Leviticus, I say this with all due respect and reverence, Leviticus is boring. Compared to Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus is boring. Why? Because it's details, details, details. And unless you're a CPA or a CPA kind of person, details, details, details will drive you back to Exodus and Genesis. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying that. It is details, and it's boring because it is details. What you have to eat, what you have to wear, ceremonial foods, everything, your rituals, because the way you acceptably worshiped God in the tabernacle, the way you approach the terrifying presence of God mediated through Moses was doing everything just right, everything just right. Ritual, performance, observance, infinite number of them. Chapter 12 tells us through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, through his being the mediator of the new covenant, the presence of the God, God comes right into our lives. We are now the tabernacle or the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
What does it mean to rest, worship God acceptably with reverence and awe? And the answer is often missed because it's so radical. But the answer is missed. Do you know why? Because of chapter divisions in the Bible. If you were to look at a manuscript of the New Testament, there are no chapter divisions in the original manuscript. And so in this sermon, he doesn't stop and say, now chapter 13. He just keeps going. And that tells us that the end of chapter 12 is also connected to the beginning of chapter 13. In other words, the text flows from one into the other. So what does this look like? Do you know what the Hebrews author wrote, what he wrote, what Paul wrote, what John wrote, what all the authors of the Bible wrote? They didn't divide their books into chapters. We did it. We divided them into chapters. And years later, just for reference, but, but the Hebrew writer was writing, there's no division, there's no division between, between verses 28, 29, and chapter 13, 1, 2, and 3, and following. Therefore, here's the answer. Here's how you worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. You love, you love, again, you love one another, your brothers and sisters. You entertain strangers. You open your life to prisoners. And I'm going to say this three or four ways because it takes that long to sink in. It's still really sinking in for me in many ways. Now the way we worship God. I'm speaking of worship here as all of life, not just something we do at a prescribed set time on Sunday morning for an hour, hour and a half, but worship as all of life. All of our life is an expression of worship to the Lord. And so now the way we worship God is through being involved in radical Christian community. Now the way we experience God in our lives and the way which the glory of God shapes us now is not through performance or ritual or observances, but through deep participation in the radically new communal practices of the New Testament, the practices of life together that the grace of God creates among people who have experienced his grace. When the gospel comes to a person, it creates in that person faith and life and new life, but it also creates in that person a desire for community, a desire for connection, radical, deep community. The way we experience his consuming presence and the way we show the glory of God is not through rituals and observances, but it's through radical new relationships between brothers and sisters in the church and with our neighbors in the city, radically new relationships. That's how we worship. That is how we experience the presence of God. And this text is saying nothing less than that. Let me put it a couple of ways. Before Jesus' death and resurrection, and after Jesus' death and resurrection, what was he doing? Well, what was he doing? You say he was teaching, he was preaching. Yeah, but what was he doing? He was creating a community. 
He wasn't writing a book. He was creating a community, a community that was going to model to the rest of the cosmos and reflect the future of God in the new humanity. In other words, the church is the avant-garde of the culture. The church, the real church, is to be preview of coming attractions of what heaven will be, of the community that heaven will be, a community for the broken, a community of healing and grace and interaction and bonding. That's what the church is to be. And that's the way we experience the consuming fire of his presence. That is the way we show the world the glory of God. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have all your petals on the tulip, that you submit to the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, concerning the teaching of the Bible. No, Jesus didn't say that. Now, both of those things are valuable. Both of those things are helpful. But what I'm telling you is the mark of a community that is glorifying God is a community of love toward our brothers and sisters. How do we love God? By loving our brothers and sisters made in his image. That's how we do it. And one of the difficulties in our culture and in our times historically has been what is called Western individualism. The idea that life is about me, that it's about my relationship with God. It's about what I do to keep myself spiritually sustained. That totally isolates itself from any connection to the body. And that's just wrong. It's out of step, biblically. Now some of us are introverts and we kind of like not necessarily having to connect. But you can't be... The people of God, Jesus continually says, you're a city set on a hill, you're a flock, you're a new society, you're a new nation. And you can't be a city on a hill by yourself. The text is saying Jesus came to earth to create a community. Are you part of a community? The text is saying you don't worship anymore just by merely coming to services. You worship by being deeply and integrally involved in a community. If you had just come to the service, you're sort of a sermon taster. You know, there are sermon tasters. If you come to a service and you're not in your daily life, in your personal life, part of a deep, intimate, intense community with other people who have experienced the grace of God, your worship is lacking. Your worship is lacking. You're not experiencing the consuming fire and power of presence of God. And that's what Hebrews is saying. In other words, chapter 13 is our Leviticus. It is our gospel Leviticus. This is how we worship God acceptably through community, through relationships. That's how it's done. That's the importance of Christian community. But there's another thing that I want to talk about when we talk about Christian community. Not only is it significant and important, but it's intense. There's to be an intensity, a vigor about it. Verse 1 could be translating, keep on loving each other as brother and sisters. It says basically there, practice brotherly love. Greek word is Philadelphia. That's the Greek word, practice brother lo brotherly love. One of the problems uh, of our problems is brotherly love. It, it sounds very vague. It's radical then, and it's also radical now. Lucian of Samosata, or Samosata, 
who was a pagan Greek intellectual, wrote about the scandalous behavior of Christians toward one another. And it was scandalous. This is what he says in one of his writings about the Christians. Listen, he says something like, Their founder persuaded them that they should be like brothers to one another. Therefore, they despise their own privacy and view all their possessions as common property. And maybe you've never really thought about the implication. You say, oh yeah, this is my brother, that is my sister. Lucian of Samosata realized the radical nature of that claim. If you experience the grace of God through Jesus Christ, this statement that every other person has experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ is your brother, is your sister, because you have been brought into the household of God. The very same act that sets you into union with Christ by faith, by faith you are united to him by his spirit, but the very same act that unites you to Christ unites you to his body, 1 Corinthians 12. You are part of the body of Christ. You have a new family. Not blood, not flesh and blood, but a new family that transcends all of that. You have a new family. And it's a radically intense metaphor. A family, that's brothers and sisters. That means our community is radically intense. Now think about that for a moment. First of all, this is talking about the intensity of our unconditional commitment to one another. Think of your siblings if you have any. Think about them for a moment. In many cases, your siblings aren't people you like at all. Tell the truth. They're people with radically different values than you. You don't approve of the way they're living. They're not the kind of people you'd ever want to hang out with. You don't like them in any way. But guess what? In spite of all that, in spite of all the fights you've had over all the years, in spite of all the horrible things, they're still your brothers and your sisters. And you feel everybody does some sort of bond of obligation, and you're right to. You didn't choose them, but you feel a bond of obligation. These are your parents' children. This is your flesh and blood. You were raised with this person or reared. You raised turnips and reared children, right? So my English teacher told me. She'd be proud to know that I remembered that. You were reared with this person, no matter how weird they are. Or how strange and different they are. Now maybe they're not the kind of people you would ever want to choose to hang out with. But there's a bond. There's an obligation. So it is with your brothers and sisters in grace. Now let's think of the intensity of the intimacy. Let's talk about your growing up period at home. Your siblings may have wiped your nose. Or even wiped your bottom. Or else wiped their nose and wiped their bottom. Or at least you saw those things being wiped. As a result, you don't put on airs anymore in the home. They know who you are. You know. Forget about your makeup. They know what their sister looks like without a speck of makeup on. They know who you are. They know what you are. There's a transparency. There's intimacy. There's reality. So it must be with our brothers and sisters in grace. Do you know how economically radical this is just to say that these people are your brothers and sisters? Lucian, the Greek, knew that. He said because these people consider themselves brothers and sisters, they've given up their privacy and the right to use their possession solely for themselves. 
And of course, because when we think of siblings, we share the same home, we share the same inheritance. That means brothers and sisters have a claim on your resources. Uh, They have a claim on your living spaces. It's radical. That's the kind of community you were reared in. And if you've experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ, then the other people who have done it, no matter whatever their race, no matter whatever their culture, no matter how different they are, they are your brother and your sister in grace. There's an unconditional commitment. There's a transparency. There's a willingness to share resources together voluntarily. If you've experienced the grace of God, then the other people who have done it, no matter all of these distinctions, are still your family. Most interesting of all is that this metaphor shows not only the intensity of the commitment and all these other things, but it shows us the single most shaping influence possible in your life. Now some of you look kind of young, maybe are kind of young, and therefore you're probably still flattering yourself that you are the product of your own choices. I know I did when I was younger. I'm the product of my own choices. I am who I am because I have chosen. You've used your decisions and you are a product of your own choices. You've used your choices. You've used your own little thoughts. You said, I want to be like this. I want to be my own person. You think you're the product of the choices. But the older you get, you're going to realize (laughs) that you're a product of your family. Never get too far from our rearing. Akron doesn't fall far from the oak tree. And it's really amazing when you think about this. And I want you to think about it with me just for a moment, carefully. Um, the people you lived with seven days a week, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, that's who shapes you more than anything else. That's who shapes you more than anything else. More than your choices, more than your thinking, more than your decisions, more than your classes, more than your program, and even more than your therapy. That's who shapes you. It's who your community is. And here's what a community is. It's a family. So if you go to a class or you go to a club, those people are people you relate to at one point. You allow one point of contact. Okay, let's say you join a bird watching club. So go up and talk to other people about bird watching and one of them says to you, I don't know why you're dating him. He's no good for you. And you say, excuse me. You are now operating under the category of my own business go away and so you spend a lot of time at work you spend a lot of time at work and sometimes you spend so much time community starts to break through basically you have a professional relationship with people you connect here a family a community all points of your life connect with points of theirs you eat together you play together you work together You study together. You argue together. You open up about your problems. You share living spaces. You share resources. You share decisions. That's a community, and that's what shapes us. Community is a means of grace. But let me summarize this. If you think by coming to a service or listening to great teaching, I mean, every week or two or three times a week, coming to a major event at church, but you never give up your privacy. 
You do not become accountable to anyone. You do not actually get into deep relationships where your personal lives and your daily lives are connected to other people, other brothers and sisters of grace, then you're not really a part of the church. You're part of a Christian club. And you don't have the first idea of what the church is in its essence. Years ago, I remember reading an illustration of how most people are at church. This writer said, most people are like a bag of marbles. They're all shiny and pretty when they come together on a Sunday morning. And you can throw them in a sack and you can spin them around in that sack. And they'll bump against each other and maybe scratch each other a little bit. But when you pour them out, they're still marbles. But the church is supposed to be a bag of grapes. And you put grapes in a sack and you start swinging them around and banging things on them. And what happens? They get smooshed and smashed. And they ooze all over the other grapes. And that's what a community is. And that's what the church is. I could give you the historical roots of this in revivalism if I wanted to. And I want to, but I don't have time. But you might want to read, I'll tell you later what you need to read on that. But, you know, the Bible's a good start. Now, if you think you're really part of a Christian community, you're not part of a Christian community, you're not going to be shaped like you think unless you are relating to brothers and sisters in grace at the brotherhood level and not the club level, not the class level, the empowering presence of God isn't working through you. For example, if you think you're learning by coming here and listening to things saying, oh, that's very inspirational, Pastor. I'm so glad you said that. But you're not a part of community where you're pounding into one another and you're thinking out how does this apply and you're holding each other accountable and you're trying out models of how it would apply, you are not learning. You're not being shaped. You're shaped by community. You're shaped by not cognition. You're not shaped about what you talk about. I mean, I went to seminary, okay? Big deal, huh? I went to seminary, and I had some marvelous teachers. I had some of the best teachers I could have ever hoped to have had. And yet what shaped my life in seminary wasn't so much the lectures in the classrooms as the discussions in the parking lot over coffee with other seminary students as the community of those of us studying together began to try to work out in our relationships what, it, what we had just heard and what it meant. And that's where the truth became uh, activated in our souls. That's how appropriation happened was in the community. We ate together. We talked together. We argued together. We pieced together a framework of thinking about the faith uh, that we're going to build the rest of our lives and the rest of the ministries we were going to be involved in. We picked. We chose. We worked it out. We argued. We developed it. It was a group of friends. It was community. That's what made me a minister, not the teacher. And these are still people who I call and talk to and have interaction with because that's where I got shaped in the community. But the next thing I want to talk about is the openness of this community. The openness. The community we know is significant. There's to be intense Christian community, but there's to be an openness. 
And this is very surprising because when you think of a community that's intense, where there's real belonging, where there's real accountability, where there's real intensity, those communities are almost impossible to break into. Isn't that right? Have you ever seen groups of people who are very intense, but they are not open? Now, I moved to southeast Louisiana in 1994 to plant a church near the city of New Orleans. In New Orleans, Louisiana, you say, well, that's a good place to go because you're a southerner and you have the right accent. You've never been to New Orleans if you think that. It is not southern in any way. Culturally, the way people talk, the way people behave is not southern at all. I mean, I consider myself to be a fairly outgoing person, a person who'll talk to people, who likes to engage with people, who's, you know, generally a nice person. And so when I moved there to plant that church, I tried every day to connect to people. And it was like I got these questions. Well, where did you grow up? I said, well, in Tennessee. Sorry to hear that. (laughs) Where did you go to kindergarten? I didn't go. They didn't have it. I'm too old. Where'd you go to your college? And I told them, and where did you go to seminary? And I told them, and they'd go, well, that's nice. I hope you do well, and they'd walk away. They would have nothing to do with me. Why? Because it's a very closed, tight-knit community. It is incredibly Catholic and tight. I call New Orleans Catholicville, and you can drive 20 20 miles from the city due north and be in Baptistville. It's that radically distinct. Now, I love those people, and I love that place, and I gave myself to connecting, but it, it wasn't open. And then there are communities that are really open, but there's no standards. There's no intensity. The Christian's community is supposed to be a community of intensity and yet openness too. And the way this comes across is by noticing two interesting balances. As we move through the passage, there are two balances. The first one is this. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forsake to entertain strangers. Now, that might not strike you too much as you read it in... English, but in Greek it's very striking because it says, work at Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, and the love of brothers and sisters, but work at Philozenia. Anybody ever called you a xenophobic? What's a xenophobic? Fear of what kind of people? The other, the stranger. And so the community that the Bible's talking about has both intensity and it has openness. And so philoxenia is an incredibly strong word, a very gospel word, and it means to love and open your living space or show hospitality to or open your resources to people who otherwise you might be suspicious of. And the reason why this is so radical in the Greco-Roman world, and it's radical today as well, is as soon as I describe it, you'll know it right away. In the Greco-Roman world, everything was about the patronage system. What was the patronage system? Well, you did invite people into your home, people whose homes you wanted to get into. You did do things for people. People then owed you 
And therefore, you could claim what they owed you later. You would do things for people who could open doors for you, who could get you into the circles you wanted to be in. Sometimes you could call your chips in. Sometimes they would call their chips in, but that's how it worked. And that's pretty much still how it works. But not in the church, not in the Christian community. You're supposed to be open to people who you have absolutely no certainty that they could ever give you anything back. You don't even know who they are. You're supposed to open up to strangers. You're supposed to open up to people who is the other, who's different, the newcomer, the person who you're not really sure about. In other words, this is not a community where you have to prove yourself before people warm to you. No, the church is to be altogether different. Do not forget to have hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. I think their author here is referring to Genesis 18 and Abraham when he brought three strangers in his home to refresh them, and they turned out to be angels or envoys from God. In Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus, when these men invited another stranger and gave him hospitality and opened their table to him, it turned out to be the Lord Jesus himself. So what this is saying is how the Christian community is supposed to work. You do not love those who you know will be able to repay you. You do not lay yourself out for the cool. You do not lay yourself out for the well turned out, the people who can help you get ahead. You don't base relationships on what's in it for you. If and only if you base your relationships on sacrificial service, You'll find a lot of your needs getting met. Angels come into your life, so to speak. Only when you're reaching out to people who can't help you will you have all the help you ever need. And so, where do we get the power to live this way? Where do we get the power to do this? Well, I kind of jumped ahead. I need to say one more thing before I close. And that's this. He tells us to remember those in prison as if they were fellow prisoners. Those who are mistreated, that would be the oppressed, as if you yourself were suffering. The marriage bed would be kept pure, and God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. And then verse 3 really talks about something called social justice. It really does. The word mistreated means oppressed. Find people who are victims of injustice and care about them and care about that. Be strong for social justice as defined by the Bible, not by the culture. Verse 3, verse 4 says no sex outside of marriage. Uh, it's very specific. The word adultery means if you're married, you can't have sex with somebody who you're not married to, of course. But the phrase sexually immoral is the word pornaya, which means sex outside of marriage, period. Premarital sex, no. Sex outside of marriage, no. You see how radical that is? It was completely radical in this day, completely different in that day. We have early Christian documents, not the Bible, but the epistle to Diognetus. And at one place, it's describing the early Christians, and it says they share their table with everybody, but not their bed with anyone. They are poor, yet many are rich. They are short of everything, and yet have plenty of things. 
See how different that was? Christians shared their tables with everyone, their money, their resources. And they didn't consult Martha Stewart before they did it. Rome or Alexandria both were radically selfish cultures and societies. And if you're willing to have sex with people, but you're not willing to marry them, that means you're putting your selfish individual need over the community. The individual is more important than the community in that culture. If I have sex without marriage, but I don't share my table, I don't share my money, that's because I'm putting my individual happiness over anything else. And so you can look at these two powerful drives in culture of sex and money that destroy community. We'll talk more about those later. I'm not going to talk about them today. But the gospel makes us unselfish because of the radical unselfishness of Jesus Christ. Who though he was rich became poor for your sakes that you through his poverty might become rich. People are crying for justice. They're crying for freedom. The importance of Christian community is all over Hebrews chapter 13. There's the intensity of it. There's the openness of it. And that leaves me with the final question, where do we get the power to do it? A community that's intense, that's in accountability. It's sticky, it's thick, it's robust, yet it's open to outsiders. It's non-judgmental. It reaches out to strangers. It balances things. Where in the world do we get power to do something like this? And the answer is in the last part of our passage. And it says in verse 7, which we didn't read, which we will talk about later. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. What is the word of God they spoke to you? It is the gospel. And what is the gospel? Don't be carried away with any kind of strange teaching. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by performance or observance. You're saved by grace, radical grace, not by your works. And if you really want to see how the dynamic for the creation of unique community, I think it's verse 5. That's the secret. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You say, well, pastor, what you've been saying here is wonderful. If only I could believe it. I mean, how can I really get outside of myself and become part of a robust community? And the reason why you can is because on the cross, Jesus Christ was forsaken. He experienced the very opposite of verse 5. In fact, it almost seems to contradict verse 5. Because of the cross, Jesus said to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God forsook him. Why? And here's why. If you don't have God in your life and are not connected to him, you are so alone. You are absolutely alone. If God is not the center of your life, therefore, you are into cosmic aloneness necessarily. Jesus Christ took our cosmic aloneness. He took the aloneness so God could say to us, no matter how we are, because Jesus paid the penalty, God can say to us, I will never, 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 never leave you alone I am with you always even to the end of the world David said my mother and father might forsake me but the Lord will bear me up 
Do you know the place in Ephesians 2, chapter 2, around verse 14, where it says you were strangers, but God has brought you in. We received God's hospitalities. We were the strangers. We had nothing God needed, but God brought us in. Why? Because of the homelessness of Jesus, we have a place to be. Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Why did he go through all of that? And he went through all of that. The ultimate hospitality was Jesus lost his home so we could be brought in through God's hospitality. And the ministry of hospitality is the way we do evangelism today. I mean, how strange would it be for you to invite people into your home? And show hospitality to them based on the radical hospitality of God. You know, Scripture is full of these uh, contrasts. The way up is down. The way to be rich is to give away. The way to be powerful is to serve. To seek the destitute. To extend hospitality to those who are broken. And so, there are a number of ways you can do that. What's a practical way you can fulfill what Hebrews is talking about well become part of the radical community called the church and invest your life in connection with church and community groups but also extend hospitality deliberately extend hospitality to people who you wouldn't ordinarily extend hospitality to now some of you are going to invite me over and I'm thinking well they think I'm so low now they're asking me up no don't start thinking that way. But you get it. You understand it. There are neighbors all around you. People living on your street. People you have contact with every day. And, and what would it hurt to have a cup of coffee with them? What would it hurt to extend some kind of kindness? Yeah, they may reject you. They may throw it back in your face. They may call you all kinds of names. But that's what the gospel is. And that's how the consuming fire of the presence dwelling indwelling of the Holy Spirit and our connection with the Trinity is that God extended hospitality to us by giving us his son to bring us in and as we image God in the world as redeemed people we're always extending hospitality to those who in no way can enhance us enrich us make us look good make us feel better but rather to serve and that's how you know you're in a Christian community. Because no other community or club acts like that. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the community of grace. Thank you for all it means to us. We thank you for your radical hospitality by which we live. We ask that you would enable us to be hospitable toward one another. We ask that you teach us how we can practice what you have told us here and what you have shown us in your Son, Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So, Father, we do pray as we continue to worship that as we think about these things, our hearts may be encouraged to give back to you with joy and celebration a portion of that which you've entrusted to us to be used for your glory. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.